I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Last night, I got a call. Hey, Dad, I won six games, two in singles and four in doubles. The sport, pickleball. Did you know that, and by the way, I didn't know this. I had to look it up. Did you know that 36 million people are now playing this sport in America, pickleball? And it now has the backing of Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, LeBron James, and a few other sports celebrities. And by the way, if you are looking for a new paddle for the sport, go where my son did. It's justpaddles.com. And believe me, these guys, they're smart, they're fun, and probably sell just about every paddle that is manufactured on the planet. Again, I personally recommend and endorse justpaddles.com for your pickleball game. And by the way, the founder, did you know he is a lifelong learner just like us? Doing a weekly show is hard. You cannot hit a home run on every show. It's impossible. But when I'm searching for content, I want something unique. I want it interesting and maybe something that hasn't been heard elsewhere. Take, for instance, the book Rasputin for Hire. It's, it's a book for new consultants. And there is a cool story behind the title of this book. The author of this 2003 a book is Michael Goodman, a marketing expert. And he is the center of attention on this edition of CFO Bookshelf. Michael Goodman is the author of Rasputin for Hire. Now, the subtitle, here it is. It's an inside look at management consulting between jobs or as a second career. And I wanted to know where that title came from. Actually, I, uh, one of my clients uh, kept calling me his Rasputin. And I had no clue what he was talking about. And I learned that Rasputin was, was basically a consultant to the Tsar and Tsarina in Russia back in the early part of the 20th century. And that he was basically a consultant for hire. And he got hired by the right people. And he was successful in the first few projects. And that made him indispensable to the Sarina. Chapter one tells a story about Greg who starts a consulting gig. And we learn that formal education isn't as important as having useful marketing skills. I love, by the way, the storytelling approach in that very first chapter. I've always used storytelling as my chief communications method in general. Sometimes the story is an experience I had with another client in another industry and how I was able to solve their problem. And by telling that story, I'm basically saying, and I can do this for you, even though your industry is completely different. So I've always used storytelling, and it's never been a conscious decision. I'm going to become a storyteller. It's been what's the best way to communicate the points I want to make? And, and because one of the advantages I offer my clients 
is broad experience across many, many industries. Um, the stories have been a way to, to sell them on the thought that you don't have to be an industry expert to be a great consultant. You need to be a, a strategy and marketing expert to solve this problem. And the way I do that is by telling them a story, not claiming that I'm the right person. This book, I think I mentioned earlier, it was published in 2003. Uh, the year before, Dan Pink wrote Free Agent Nation in 2002. And if I'm not mistaken, that may have been his first book. I wanted to hear from Michael why he wrote this book. At the end of the book, I, I have a chapter that, it, or it's an appendix, I think, actually, um, with a roundtable discussion with a bunch of consultants and former consultants. At, at one or two of those people mentioned the Pink Book to me in the course of our interviews. Most of these people, I had multiple interviews. It wasn't one interview and then done. It was, a, it was three or four calls or in-person meetings, a couple of lunch meetings um, over a period of maybe six months or eh, maybe a little less than that, four months. Um, and I think a couple of them had mentioned the, that book. And so I, I was aware of it, but I, I wasn't sure that there was anybody out there helping freelance consultants understand their industry. It's somehow when you consider it a business and you plan to be in that business for a while, um, it takes on a different tone because it's not a series of short-term hits. It's a long-term relationship that starts with one hit. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I kind of warned people that if you're in this for a short-term hit, you're not as likely, you're, you're likely to make a greater investment than the payoff justifies. Chapter four has the seven key success factors for consultants. Number one, understand and love selling. Now, almost 20 years later, I wanted to know if Michael still agrees with this point. I do, maybe even more today than when I wrote the book. It, it, today, it, it, there are different marketplaces than there were when I wrote the book. For example, um, there are many services online of people who basically do the fishing for you and they send you leads. They're lead generation services. Those require even more selling than what you would think. You, you spare yourself the pain of going through a hundred people to find three that might be clients, but you, you have a hundred leads and you have to sell every one of them. Nobody's going to hire you just because you would, because a lead was generated somehow. Um, most of those leads are cold leads, and that requires more selling than someone who actually finds you. In the old days, I still had to sell myself, but the people who became leads were all either referred to me or found me on their own. It wasn't like me going into them saying, let me tell you why you need me. It was them coming, them coming to me saying, I need what you do. Can you come and meet with me and let's talk about it? And, and so, yes, you still have to love selling. I think you have to love it even more today because the leads are colder. Success factor number two, you have to like working alone. Now, Michael has been consulting since 19, 
79. And I wanted to know how hard it is for him. That one, that one's an easy one for me because I really do like working alone. I, I prefer being left to do my job without having to interact with other peers. I'm not a, it's not that I'm not a team player. It's that I do better work alone than I do as part of a team. When I'm part of a team, I can, I can go into that mode, but I often end, end up kind of kicking myself saying, I'm coming up with 90% of the great ideas here, and I'm sharing them with other people who, who yes, are doing their part, but it's never, it never seems equal. So I'm, I'm very comfortable working alone. I've been doing it since I went out consulting. Um, at, the, at the beginning, a lot of it was uh, technical marketing, uh, a lot of data analysis. As an engineer, that's kind of my comfort zone. And you can't basically solve a math problem or manipulate a spreadsheet as part of a team nearly as well as you can alone. So I'm real comfortable working alone. Okay, Michael, you enjoy working alone. What about peer networks? I have two kinds of, of uh, I call them partners. They're all, I guess they're really subcontractors, but one of them, I, well, I call them both my partners. One is, is a very good former Procter & Gamble brand manager um, who's very strong on getting the strategy right. And so he and I work together a lot. Uh, the other one is a professional market researcher. Um, I find that a lot of a lot of what I do requires market research or analysis of research, and I found a really really top notch research person uh, that I that I work with quite a bit. Again, I call her my partner, um, and and we work together. So I, I usually have someone else, but I, I use them almost as uh, as experts, specialists not as co-general practitioners. Number seven in critical success factors, you have to have confidence in your own abilities. And that seems like a lot of common sense. So come on, Michael, why did you add that one to the list? You know, it's interesting. I, I added it to my list because one, well, one or more, at least one that I can think of in particular of the experts I talked to was a man who went into consulting and within a year decided that this wasn't for him and he went back to work on the client side. He got himself a nice job and, and we, we are still, I don't want to say friends, we're still acquainted. Uh, he, we've, he's moved to the other end of the country, so I don't see him nearly as often. Um, but he wasn't happy as a consultant. And as we talked through why that was, it became clear to me that he was very uncomfortable letting his abilities and, and his ideas um, carry the day. He, he, he wasn't confident in his own abilities. And so that kind of awakened me to the, to the thought that if you are like, if you're that way, you're not going to enjoy consulting. And if you don't enjoy consulting, you're not going to be great at it. And there are too many great consultants out there for, for a not-so-great one to survive. Page 53 includes a mission statement in the book. And Michael states, you have to know what the goal is. And Michael, he agrees 
just like in 2003, a mission statement is just as important today. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, then, you know, any road will get you there. It's like you got to have you have to know what the goal is. And every time you lose sight of that, you you risk wandering into nowhere land. And, and you spend a lot of time doing things that are not going to make a difference for your client. That's, that's not a good way for a consultant to build a reputation. One thing I learned about this book is I was more than halfway through it. It's not just for consultants. Even today in my day job, I interviewed three financial leaders. They are in between jobs. So my question, is it a good idea to do consulting between W-2 positions? I think the, the pros are, I want to say, self-evident. Um, number one, you make a little bit of money when you need it or when you feel like you need it. And consulting can be very lucrative. So that, yes, uh, there's money there and, and there's a need for expertise. Um, every company needs you know, a certain number of skills. And if you've got them and the company doesn't, then you're worth money to them. Uh, separately, it keeps you kind of plugged in to the business world and particularly in your industry. So yeah, there's a, there is a, a set of, of positives, of pros that make this very, make consulting very attractive to people who are out of work. Um, and I can understand that. The negative is it's harder than you think. It takes more time to land a good client. It takes time to do the projects and you can't very well do both at full steam all the time. You burn out very quickly. Most people don't think about that. They're too focused on, I need to stay busy in the industry and make some money. Um, and so I net out saying for most people, I'm not sure consulting between jobs is a good trade-off. If what you really want is another job, you should spend full time finding that other job. If you want a, a, a second career where you think you'll be a consultant for a long time, that's fine, but then don't expect an immediate payout. You're going to spend the first X months or years landing a client. Um, in my particular practice, it takes about 12 months to close a deal. I, I work with a client, not on purpose, but I, it just works out most of the time. I work with a client for almost a year before I have a signed consulting agreement. And, and that's a long time, unless you have other clients paying the bills along the way. Okay, Michael, let's just slow down just a little bit. That consulting gig, is it a good idea or a bad idea if that consulting becomes a W-2 position? I know a few, I know a few cases right now off, off the top of my head where it's worked out very well for the person in between. But I have to tell you, they didn't start out saying, I'll consult for a little while and then, and then someone will offer me a job. They ended up saying, I think my second career is going to be consulting. And as they did it, after a period of months or years, somebody made them an offer that was much better than what they would have gotten had they just started interviewing for a job right away. So yeah, it is, there is a payoff when you get hired by a client. But if you go into it saying, 
I'm just going to do this consulting thing for a short time until I can find a good job, you may be disappointed. It might be longer than you think and longer than you can sustain. You already know I love asking authors about their favorite books. Here are two that stand out for Michael. Um, These are not necessarily in order of importance or influence, but I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and there are a few that really jump out at me. Uh, One of them is a a book by Dan Ariely. (laughs) Um, And uh, the one I'm looking at is The Upside of Irrationality, but he has a few others. And I'm trying to find where they are. I know I've got them here. Uh, but Dan Ariely, I think, has a lot of, uh, offers a lot of insight uh, into how people think and behave. And he uses a lot of marketing psychology yeah. um, in, his, in his books. So I, I strongly recommend Dan Ariely. Um, in the same vein, there's a guy, the poor guy has been gone now for, I don't know, maybe 20 years or 15 years, uh, Ned Herman, H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N. Um, and he has a book called The Creative Brain. It, it, what's it called? The Whole Brain Business Book. The Whole Brain Business Book is the, the, the business version of The Creative Brain. And, and Ned Herman um, has a very interesting way of looking at how people prefer to think and how you can use that knowledge to make better decisions. Um, And so that's one that's been very important to me. Actually, right shortly after Ned died, his daughter approached me to ghostwrite the balance of a book that he had started right before his death. And so I got very involved with them and got kind of, I, I got to know a lot more about their business and their view and their their view of people's thinking uh, than I ever expected to, and I got sucked into the point where I really do appreciate um, what they've discovered. Now, the guy's a scientist, and he he looked critically at the benefits of viewing people's thinking styles this way. Uh, so I, I think some of those books are really good. By the way, I never did finish the book with them; they changed direction, and that went away. But in the, in the process, I got to, to know a lot about the Herman process, the creative brain. And I do recommend it for marketers. Because Michael is a gifted marketer, I wanted to know if he likes Seth Godin as a marketer. I am a fan of Seth Godin, but I think some of his books are not as sophisticated as they might be. And therefore, when you get done reading them, you think you've spent a lot more time than you needed to to get the idea. But one exception to that is a book called Permission Marketing. Um, And I I found that to be an eye-opener back when I first read it, and I've reread it since, and each time I reread it, I said, that's very interesting. The the underlying message in the book is, most advertising is interruptive. It presents itself to you when you're really looking for something else. When you're on Facebook and you're looking to see what your best friend had for dinner last night, um, you see an ad up in the, on the right column trying to sell you something. It interrupts the purpose you came for. And that interruptive kind of marketing is not very effective most of the time. And so what you really want is to be invited to solve a problem 
and and use that as your marketing approach. And permission marketing is all about that difference, being a solution to someone's problem as opposed to pushing what you have at them and interrupting them with your with your message. Speaking of Seth, and I was glad we were recording this because I heard a couple of fascinating insights about that brainiac marketer. I've met Seth a few times. I know him. I know people that have worked with him. And he's a very smart guy, very entertaining. And his stories are fun. But it's the same story 14 times. If you, mm-hmm. if you missed it the first time, just keep reading. You'll get it again. And that's, that's kind of my reaction to many of his books. Not that the points he's making are wrong or that the stories aren't interesting. It's, it's just that when I get done, I, I could have done that in two pages. So finally, Michael, your last tip for future consultants. It's all about delivering a solution to your client's problem. If, if you're not delivering a solution to your client's problem, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are at market research or how, how many different uh, rebates you've designed in the marketing world. It's not about any of those things. It's, it's really about solving a, a, an identified critical problem of your clients. It's the benefit your client realizes um, when they hire you. And if you keep your eye on that instead of on exactly what you're going to do, it's the result you're trying to get and the solution to the client's problem that you're going to deliver. If, if people would keep that in mind, there would be a lot more successful consulting projects, I think. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Michael Goodman, the author of Rasputin for Hire. We talked about the critical success factors for consultants. He had a list of seven items and only went through three of them. So let me just go through the entire list of seven and I'll repeat the other three. Number one, you have to love selling. Actually, I left out a word. You have to understand and love selling. Number two, you have to like working alone, which we talked about. Okay, number three, you have to be a quick study. Again, that sounds common sense, but he is so correct. Uh, Number four, you have to be analytical. Number five, you have to be insightful and or intuitive. I would actually say both. Number six, you have to be a good communicator. I would even go on to say better than good, and Michael would agree with that. And then number seven, we talked about you have to have confidence in your own abilities. And if not, you will not make it as a consultant. By the way, every time I coach, mentor, financial leaders, the one thing we talked about is you need to think of yourself as a consultant in your company. So in a way, this book does apply to everyone, not just consultants. Hey, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.